be wanting to ask you about your historical experiences, which are all over the globe. Uh, but we're going to talk about Ukraine tonight. Good, good. And I'd like to start with just asking you, with this map in the background, your assessment from your own visits to Ukraine of the situation there, the state of the war, the state of Ukraine's uh, morale, the, the overall question. Thank you. Um, Thank you very much for, for having me here. It's great. I'm looking forward to this with the students. I mean, we got, and I'm looking forward to your questions. Uh, 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 whatever you want to talk about, I'm, I'm eager, to, eager to do that. You know, I'm, I'm looking at this map. This map doesn't have borders. You know? It's a little bit of a, you know, the projection is not, not super. But uh, you, you know where Ukraine is. Um, and you know kind of what's, what's generally going on there. So, um, as the professor said, um, Ukraine is struggling for its life. Ukraine is defending itself, is defending its right to exist. Um, so in 2014, um, Russia, its big neighbor, again, you can't see it on this map, but you know, there it is, you can't see the border, but there. Um, invaded part of Ukraine, and the part of Ukraine that they invaded was, uh, you can't see this, it's, it's Crimea. It's the southern peninsula of, uh, southern portion of, uh, of Ukraine. Um, and, they, and the Russians have occupied Crimea, and another part called Donbass, also outlined here, you can't see those outlines, you can't see the rest, um, since 2014, so coming up on 10 years. Um, and there was a low-level fighting along the line of contact um, uh, since 2014, all the way through 2022. In February of 2022, the Russians uh, assembled troops, Russian forces, all around the all around the borders. From the north in Belarus, you can see you got Belarus here. You got, uh, of course, the Russians here, and then on the south, they had their troops in Crimea. So they were able to surround Ukraine and invade Ukraine um, in, a, in a surprise, a, a big surprise to most people, not all. We can talk about that. I mean, our, your CIA you know, figured it out. Your CIA, the, the Central Intelligence Agency in Washington, D.C., often gets criticized, and, um, but they somehow figured it out and let people know that there was a really good chance that the Russians were going to invade Ukraine. The reason it was hard to accept was it made no sense. It made no sense um, for Russia to invade Ukraine uh, because that was the understanding. The understanding for years had been, for, for generations since World War II, was that nations don't invade other nations. Now this was a, an innovation, actually. Professor, you will probably teach this. Um, but for a long time, up until World War II, there was uh, no respect for sovereignty of nations, uh, for borders. Uh, but since World War II, there was a general understanding that nations are sovereign, that, that national borders matter. And you don't, big nations, strong nations, don't invade, don't have the right or can't get away with invading small nations, weaker nations, until the Russians invaded Ukraine. So what's going on here is, are, are, are two things. One, as I say, the Ukrainians are fighting for their existence. 
if they lose, there won't be a Ukraine. We won't have a map of, of Ukraine. There won't be a map of Ukraine um, if the Russians win. Putin has made that very clear. He just wants to absorb, control, take back um, Ukraine. So this is existential in the real sense of that word for Ukraine. But the second thing that's going on is this, these, this order that had kept at least Europe uh, from a major war since World War II, um, that order is challenged. Putin wants to get rid of, that, of those rules. He doesn't want to abide by them. He says those rules where you respect each other's borders, you respect sovereignty of others. He says those are American rules. Uh, he doesn't want to go by American rules. Well, of course, they, they apply to all, all of us. Um, so what's going on right now, and answer your question, there's a long answer to your question. You gave me a general question, so I'll give you a long answer. Um, is the Ukrainians are fighting for their own existence. They are defending themselves. They're defending their families, their land, their nation. But they are also, at the same time, they are defending Europe. So they are what's between, Ukraine is what's between Russia and NATO, Europe, our allies. Um, so what's going on there is the Ukrainians are part of our security. The Ukrainians are fighting in some real sense on our behalf. They are, in, if they win, let's go the other way, if they win, we are more secure. The United States is more secure. Clearly Europe is more secure. And since we are in a strong alliance, the NATO alliance with Europeans, we are more secure because our allies are more secure. So that's, that's what, that's the, those are the stakes, Professor. I mean, that's the, the, the get us started. Okay, the, the stakes are clear, but of course, um, as you know well, uh, this past summer, there was a, a great deal of expectation and hope that the Ukrainian military offensive would make significant progress. That doesn't seem to be the case. I was wondering, you've been to Ukraine recently, Wondering if you could talk about how Ukrainians see the war now. Be glad to, yes. So since February 24th, 2022, since 18, 19 months ago, 19 months of war, the Ukrainians have been fighting, and the Russians have been fighting, let's be clear. Um, I've, I've been there five times since, and I'll go back again in January. Um, so I've, I've been able to see, talk to, have good interactions with, have meetings with a lot of Ukrainians. So I have some good friends still, we're in the Ukrainian military. Um, they're in the army, um, and they are on the on this on these lines. Um, uh, and you're right; um, they had hoped, and a lot a lot of American military had hoped um, that the Ukrainians would be able to break through these lines um, in the summer. And they started off uh, in June with an attempt, and it was terrible. It was terrible. The, the Russians had probably six, seven, eight months to prepare while the Ukrainians were waiting for the assistance that was coming from the United States and from other European allies, um, but it was coming slowly. And that delay um, in the buildup of the Ukrainian capa military capabilities allowed the Russians to dig in, lay incredible mines. So one of, the, one of my friends, um, um, is now a lieutenant, um, and he leads a small unit um, 
Uh, and their job has been to go out at night along the front lines where the mines, the minefields have been laid. And the Russians have put an, a, a, just a dense field of mines kilometers deep, two, like two, three, four kilometers deep of this. And he, my friend, his name's Alex, Alex Gordon, um, uh, was describing this. He said within a square meter, within one square meter, there could be five mines of different kinds. Some anti-personnel mines that kind of pop up, uh, some, some uh, pressure sensitive mines, some trip wires, some, some big anti-tank mines in the streets, in the roads, the paths, but the Russians had been able to prepare for this offensive. They knew what was coming. They didn't know where. The Russians didn't know where. So they mined the whole, this whole area. Um, and so the Ukrainians are now looking at winter coming. Big snow, big storm just over this past weekend. Um, in Russia as well as in Ukraine, in Crimea. Um, the Russians right now, this gets to your question about the morale, the Russians have been waiting for the winter to come, waiting for it to get very cold, which it now has. For a while, they, the Ukrainians were lucky that the winter came a little bit late. I mean, I, I've been there when the, Russia, the, the winter comes uh, early, the, the, the fall was, was pleasant in terms of weather, um, but it's cold now. And the Russians are waiting, have been waiting for that change in weather to get very cold, to do what they did last winter, which is attack the electricity generation capacity of Ukraine and attack distribution, which is bad enough because that's where they get the heat and the light. It's critical for water, and I didn't realize this. So people who have been to Ukraine, anybody in this room been to Ukraine? Okay, all right, I know Helen has. <laughs> no, the ambassador has, is that right? Um, recently? Recently. Okay, okay, so you, if you visited Kiev, presumably you did. Lviv. Lviv, okay, Lviv has the same thing. Kiev has even more of these very high rise apartments. So 20, 22 stories. So no electricity means no elevators, no light, uh, but it also means no water. So if you don't have water and you're on the 22nd floor or the 18th floor, um, you walk down carrying buckets and you walk back up carrying full buckets. Um, or you don't have water. Um, this is, so the, the Russians know this. The Russians know this. The Russians have, have conducted this in a brutal way, in a, in a horrible way. The war crimes, I won't cringe. Uh, I won't make you cringe was the description. It is terrible, but that's what's going on this summer. So, answer to your question. The Ukrainians, they've been through one winter. They made it through. They've prepared, they've tried to prepare for this coming winter. Uh, they're, tr they're still supporting their military. They are convinced that in the end they will win. The Ukrainians don't say, I've mentioned this before, the Ukrainians don't say after the war, they say after the victory. The Ukrainians, the Ukrainians are convinced that they can win this if, they know what this if is, they're convinced they can win if they get the support from the West, from NATO and from the United States. So they are grimly determined at this point, I would say, Professor. That's the way I would describe it. Um, 
I uh, showed the ambassador before we talked that uh, there was a piece in today's New York or Washington Post uh, by a Russian writer, Mikhail Zygar, who pointed out that the Russian economy, rather than having been sort of damaged or rather than having been uh, undermined uh, totally, is actually growing that uh, real estate prices are up, restaurants are full, the oligarchs have returned some 50 billion, and that the Gazan war has taken attention away from Ukraine. And the headline that the Post uh, gave to this um, story was, is Putin winning? And uh, I wanted to ask you, do you think uh, the situation now um, demonstrates that Russia is also prepared for a long war? I think Russia is prepared for a long war. In fact, I think Russia's only strategy, Putin's only strategy, is to wait us out. Putin hopes that he can either, that he can destroy the morale of the Ukrainians by bombing their electricity generation. He hopes that he can crack the, the Ukrainian morale, uh, or or reduce the support that the Ukrainians have for their president, for President Zelensky, and their head general, General Zeluzhny. These two men um, have the full support of the Ukrainians for what they're doing, leading the country and leading the military. Um, and Putin's only strategy is to see if he can crack that or crack the European morale and see if he can make the Euro Europeans stop providing the support to the, or crack ours. Try to get the Americans to stop supporting the Ukrainians. And the only, he doesn't have a strategy other than to wait us out. He's hoping that something will happen next year and, and the politics will change um, and, that, uh, and that the Americans will stop supporting the Ukrainians. And like I said, the Ukrainians know that they can win. They're convinced they can win if they get the support. And if they don't get the support, which is Putin's only hope, then that's, that's what he's, he's waiting on. That article, by the way, I'm glad you, you raised it. Um, as I mentioned, uh, all of that is true. The, the Russians are adapting to the sanctions that we've put on. They have mobilized their economy. The re one of the reasons, the, the main reason their economy is doing as well as it is, is it's, full, it's on a war footing. It's totally mobilized uh, and is drafting um, people. Now, the first draft that President Putin uh, instituted last fall um, was only a partial draft, so he didn't totally mobilize. Uh, when he announced it in October, a million Russians fled the country. A million Russians went into Georgia and to Kazakhstan and, and to, uh, uh, to Dubai. Uh, um, and those million were the, you know, the kinds of people he needs. They are the young people, the educated people, um, and the technically skilled people that, that he needs. So he's, 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 he has, he's made a mistake by this invasion. He knows he's made a mistake. He is, he's pushing the economy to do it, uh, to, to, to push it through. One last thing just on, that, on the comparison of the Russians and the, and the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians have the support um, of all of Europe, um, the European Union, the Brits, the, all, all of Europe. He's got the support of all of North America. He's got the United States and Canada. He's got South Korea, he's got Japan, he's got Australia, he's got New Zealand. He's got um, uh, the, the West. 
and the bulk of the economic strength, power, um, uh, GDP of, uh, of the West. Putin can buy weapons from two countries, North Korea and Iran. Um, the size of the, of the economics base that he has is one to 20 compared to what the, the Ukrainians have in, in their support. So if, if you know, reading this, you might say, oh, you know, Putin's in good shape. He's not in good shape. Um, and he has, doesn't have a strategy except that will get tired. Well, on the same day, uh, the website of The Hill, a, a major, or major web publication on Congress, featured an article as why Republicans are souring on Ukraine, uh, featuring the fact that there is now a significant number of Republican representatives um, who are voting against aid to Ukraine. Um, a Republican presidential candidate, Vadek Ramaswamy, has criticized the Ukrainian government as undemocratic, corrupt, and persecuting Christians, and that we should cut off aid. Donald Trump, who is now the front runner for the Republican nomination and also the front runner in the election, has said that he would settle the war within a day, um, more or less accepting probably the loss of territory for Ukraine. All of this must figure in Ukrainians' calculation. All of this figures in Putin's, Putin loves every statement. Putin loves to hear that, the, that there is discord in the United States, that there's a small portion, small portion of the Republican Party, of one of the two parties. Putin loves that. That's what he's hoping, that's what I'm telling you. He wants there to be a, a drop in support for Ukraine. That's what he's after, that's what he's after. And I'll tell you, the other thing, I, I, you know, uh, Professor, you are finished your, your question. I interrupted That's all right. I well, I, I, I wanted to, to ask you whether the, the politics of Ukraine, um, the, the, the question that it may become an issue between the parties, um, or that, uh, in fact, uh, it might become uh, uh, the, uh, a central question in the presidential campaign, um, how can that uh, either be uh, affected? Uh, what, what does... What should the United States or what should the Biden administration be doing now uh, to head that off? So, so everything you said again is uh, absolutely true. That is, there is a larger number of, uh, of Congress people um, um, who are willing to vote against aid to Ukraine than there has been in the past. In the past, it's been about five people, and so now, we're, but there are more, and so the, the trend is not right in terms of that. However, um, when you when you Look at the at the votes in the House of Representatives and in the Senate, and when you look at the statements of coming from congressmen and senators, um, it is clear that there is bipartisan support for aid to Ukraine um, in both the House and the Senate. Lock solid in the in the Senate. I mean, in the Senate there are a couple there are a couple of senators um, um, who oppose this, and you know you can count them on the fingers of kind of one hand. Um, in the House, you know, there are, there are tens of, uh, of, of, and even twenties, um, uh, of, but they are in the minority, and the, there's a by, if you, if you took a vote today on the floor of the House, it, the assistance to Ukraine would pass. If you took a vote on the Senate, it would pass overwhelmingly. Um, if, when you take polls in the United States, you know, asking what people think, 60% of the Americans, uh, depending on the poll, um, support aid to Ukraine. Now, 
they will say, you know, you will say, Professor, that yeah, that, that's true, but it's down. Yeah, it's, it is down. It's down from like 80% before, and it's now down to 60. Uh, nonetheless, 60% of, of American support uh, for this, and there's bipartisan support in the Congress. You, you raised the, the presidential election. Um, the quotes that you gave, again, come right out of the Kremlin. I mean, this is exactly the Kremlin line, um, that, oh, the Ukrainians, the Kremlin, <laughs> Putin, uh, says the, that Ukraine is corrupt. He says it's being run by Nazis. He says President Zelensky, Jewish by, by birth, you know, is a Nazi. Uh, and he, he tried that, it didn't work, and so he kind of dropped that. Uh, but, but this is exactly what President Putin is trying to do. It's his only strategy. Well, well you know, though, that one of the problems uh, in terms of enlisting support is that uh, many of the non-aligned countries, uh, large non-aligned countries, Brazil, South Africa, um, India, have not been uh, fully supportive of Ukraine. And in fact, have basically benefited in some ways from uh, some of the sanctions. How, in, your, in the piece that you wrote um, back in September, um, you mentioned the need to try and change non-aligned opinion. Do you think that's possible these days? I do think it's possible. Um, I'm not sure it's critical. What's critical is our support for Ukraine. They're not aligned, the rest of the world, other parts of the world. So this, the, as I've mentioned, Europe, United States, Far East, uh, our allies, our, our democratic allies, our strong uh, market allies, um, strong support. You know, well over, well over half the GDP of the world. Um, is supporting, supporting Ukraine. Now, it is true that, um, that the Brazilians uh, are not supporting. You know, and Ukraine's worried about that. They would like to have the Brazilians, but, um, but you know, um, we have some people from Brazil in the room. Um, but if the Brazilians don't support, it's not critical. Uh, if the South Africans don't support, it's not critical. It would be good for the Brazilians and the South Africans and the Indonesians and the Egyptians uh, and the Saudis, uh, it would be good for them to realize, to recognize that they are better off in a world where big strong nations don't invade other nations, where he heavily armed neighbors don't invade poorly armed neighbors. They are better off, all nations, are better off um, in a world where their sovereignty is respected, their borders are respected. Um, so yeah, I think it would be good for them. It's not critical. What's critical is our support for Ukraine to enable them to win this war. Um, well, one of the points that the Russian writer mentioned, and certainly on a lot of people's minds, is the fact that the war in Gaza has taken American attention, mostly now directed toward the Middle East and away from Ukraine. It's also, of course, um, had an impact on uh, perceptions of the United States and parts of the world that uh, many have argued has uh, hurt the United States' case, um, even if, uh, again, uh, Americans feel strongly in support of Israel. Nevertheless, the whole question of uh, another war breaking out, and the question of binding the assistance to Israel with Ukraine came up, of course, in the House. How do you see the impact of the Gazan war 
on uh, this question of, of support for Ukraine? There's no doubt, uh, there's no doubt that the attack on October 7th, um, Hamas on Israel, um, uh, has focused the attention, rightly so, um, on that part of the world. Um, it has focused attention which had, which had faded. You know, for a long time there was a whole lot of effort devoted um, to the Israeli-Palestinian issue, you know, and there was a lot of attention um, thought, writing, um, uh, energy behind coming up with a solution to that problem. Two states, a Jewish state and a Palestinian state, um, living side by side in peace. But that had fallen off. So what, uh, what has happened now, since October 7th, and everything that's followed, um, has been a renewed interest in how to solve that problem. Um, which, again, you're, you're, of course you're right. Um, um, we all have a limited ability to, to focus on many things. I mean, we can focus on a couple of things, um, but when we're focusing on Israel-Palestine, Middle East, we're focusing less on Ukraine. There's no doubt, there's no doubt. That said, we can do both. Um, that said, we can continue to support uh, Ukraine, even while we are supporting trying to solve that problem. Um, recently in the Wall Street Journal, uh, Walter Russell Mead criticized the Biden administration for, as he put it, quote, being more interested in avoiding confrontation with Russia rather than defeating it. Um, is that, as your perception of what the Biden administration's policies have been, or would you defend the administration on this issue? No, I, I don't think the administration, um, and I, I don't think the administration's goal is to defeat Russia. The administration's goal, and frankly the Ukrainian goal, uh, which we support, um, is for Ukraine to exist in its internationally recognized borders that they've enjoyed since 1991, since they became independent of the Soviet Union. Uh, that's a win. Winning, is, winning for Ukraine, and what we are supporting them, is just to get the Russians out of their country. It's that simple. Just get the Russians out, it'd be easy to say. And the, the, right now, they occupy 18 to 20 percent. The Russians occupy 18 to 20 percent. So, and that's what the administration has pushed. Now, that's different from defeating Russia. <clears throat> it's different. And <clears throat> if it happens, if it does, you know, if the Ukrainians do succeed pushing the Russians out, <clears throat> it's not good for President Putin. <laughs> it's not good for President Putin. And he is likely to lose his job one way or the other. Um, we can think about how that might happen. Uh, some smart people have kind of given a lot of thought to how that might happen, um, but he might. But that's not our position. That's not anything that we can affect. That's not what the administration is after, regime change. No, it's very simple. Um, get the Russians out of the sovereign country of Ukraine. Although, and I don't mean to, uh, the administration has been very careful about what types of weapons and, and weaponry to go. True. With the result, of course, that you might get something of a stalemate, and a stalemate in the American political system is usually um, difficult to, to maintain political support. So in effect, their policies may cripple the possibility of a Ukrainian. So I would agree with that, and I would, further, and I would urge the administration, uh, and have urged the administration, many people have, to do more faster. 
if we want this war to end, if we want the Ukrainians to win, we need to provide them with what they need. You are exactly right, and, and uh, Walter Russell is also right. Others have made this point over and over that we took too long to make decisions about what weapons to give to the Ukrainians. And we dithered and we wrung our hands about whether, you know, what will the Russians think or what will they do um, if we give them this weapon system? And then we gave them that weapon system and the Russians did. And then we gave them the next, you know, what would they do if we gave them this high bars artillery? Oh, the Russians might get upset about this, you know, who knows what, they didn't, we gave it to them. Then with the tanks, maybe the Russians will really get upset if we give them that, give the Ukrainians tanks, no. We gave them tanks, you know, the, the F-16, that decision has been made. We've even given the longest range weapons that we have, not quite the longest range, the longest systems that can go the long range. Um, and again, that was there was concern in the administration. They went too slow, I totally agree. Um, um, but they have now figured it out that they can continue to provide these weapons. And that's what, that's what they're doing. It's too slow, I, I will grant you that. Do you think there's any realistic possibility of a, a settlement whereby Russia would actually admit and provide any type of reconstruction assistance to Ukraine? I'm glad you asked, though I'm very glad you asked. <coughs> the question is, let me rephrase the question okay. to, to make it easier to answer. Will the Russians pay for reconstruction? Yes, um, and here's how. Um, it turns out several of you have heard this story before, <laughs> so I will, I will tell it anyway, because some of you haven't. Um, so, <clears throat> President Putin, when he was thinking about whether or not to invade Ukraine, thought he could probably, he thought he would probably be subject to sanctions. He knew what, you know, President Biden actually called President Putin and said, if you invade Ukraine, we're going to put the sanctions on like you've never seen before. Putin knew that was coming. President Biden probably thought he could deter, they didn't, it was, they were never, but Putin thought he could withstand sanctions because he had $600 billion of, of reserves in his central bank, in the Russian central bank. He had $600 billion. The problem is half of that 600 billion, so $300 billion are in Western banks, are in G7 banks. And those $300 billion half of the 600 that he thought he had are frozen. Putin can't get at those. And all we have to do is seize those 300 billion that are in Western banks and put it into an international fund managed by you know, you know, the Europeans or the World Bank uh, with the Ukrainians. And that can go a long way to reconstructing Ukraine. The estimates are that it's going to take at least $500 billion to, to repair the damage that the Russians have caused. $500 billion. $300 billion are already in our banks. So I'm glad you asked this question. Well, I'm, uh, I, I'm almost at the point where I want to open it up now to student questions, Excellent. particularly. Um, and uh, we, we have a hard uh, end at around 7.30. So we'd like to see if any of you um, would like to ask questions of the ambassador. Do we have a volunteer? We have one out there. Yes. Yes, uh, as you know, uh, Wagner failed its coup attempts uh, earlier this year. And when uh, Wagner got exiled to Belarus, uh, Prigozhin died in the plane crash. Do you think we're going to see an offensive in the spring from Wagner forces north of Kiev? 
So the, the, Wagner, the Wagner group, led by Prigozhin, as you indicated, a very good question. Um, Prigozhin, of course, mounted uh, a mutiny against, against the Kremlin um, and was halfway up the road toward the Kremlin when he decided that he wasn't getting the support he thought he was going to get. So he stopped. Um, and Putin, that day, um, panicked in the beginning. He woke up in the morning and Prigozhin and Wagner, this Wagner's well-trained, the most successful military uh, unit in, in, in Russia, was the only one who's been able to take any significant, make any significant gains. And all of a sudden, it's pulled out of Ukraine. Prigozhin pulls Wagner out of Ukraine, goes over and takes over Rostov, which is a, which is a, uh, uh, a military headquarters. No opposition. There was no opposition to this takeover, this mutiny. Um, indeed, he was greeted as a hero. You, you probably saw him. People were taking selfies with, uh, with Prigozhin on, on the way uh, to, to, uh, to, to attack Moscow. Um, and, and Putin panicked. Putin came out and said, this is treason, this, you know, stab in the back, we're gonna have to crush them. And uh, by the end of the day, uh, Putin had made a deal uh, with Prigozhin. And then you're right, uh, what, uh, a couple of months later, after, after Prigozhin was kind of going around the country, flying in his own jet, um, all of a sudden his jet explodes um, on, on the way from Moscow to, uh, to St. Petersburg. He dies along with a lot of his, uh, this is a long answer to your question. I don't think so. I don't think that there will be a Wagner um, mutiny again because Wagner, so they learned, Putin learned and, and the military learned, there's not a good idea to have these independent private military companies. These, um, it was a bad idea because they couldn't control them. And we saw the, he saw the results. So they have disbanded and dispersed the Wagner troops and units into, back into the military. And the military is starting to take more. So I don't think you'll see that. Now, that demonstrated there's a fragility um, in the military chain of command, in the Russian military chain of command. Um, that if, if that can happen, it can happen again. Wagner, Prigozhin probably stopped because he thought that he was gonna have support. When he took off and headed, headed north toward Moscow, uh, from Rostov, he thought he was gonna have support, and you know, he had some reason to think so. The, there were a couple of generals that we know of um, who, had must, who must have told Prigozhin, we'll support you, and they didn't. And when he saw that they didn't, he stopped. But those generals um, are an indication that Putin's got problems. He's not sure who's loyal, who's not. Um, he's done some, he's fired some of those, he pulled, he's moved some around. Um, the, the military chain of command in Russia uh, is fragile. So I don't expect them, I don't think Wagner, but, but uh, Putin knows he's got a problem. So you talked about um, Ukraine needing the support of, especially the United States. Uh, you said we should give them what they need. I was wondering if in that statement you would include even mobilizing our own troops and supporting in more of like a present way. And if so, if you could explicate a couple of the reasons as to why that would be necessary. It's not necessary. It's not necessary. The Ukrainians have not asked for 
any NATO troops, no American troops. There are no American troops uh, on the ground in Ukraine. Uh, the support that we are providing is significant, but it's 5%. The, the military support we're providing to Ukraine is 5% of our military budget. Our defense budget is about 850 billion, and we're providing some 45 billion dollars, a lot of money, let's, let's, let's be clear, but that's 5% of our defense budget, and we, without a soldier in Ukraine, without any of our soldiers in Ukraine, they're not asking for it, um, and, and the Ukrainians have degraded one of our two main enemies, the challengers. I mean, the, the Russians are clearly our enemies, the Chinese are at least the threat, um, but of those two, which, which accounts for our defense budget being $850 billion, 5% of that is doing great damage to one of those two enemies, our, the enemy that is the most immediate threat, the enemy that is actually killing people by the tens of thousands. And the Ukrainians are holding them off for 5% of our defense budget. So they're, they're not asking for our soldiers. Um, they're asking for the, the tools, the weapons, so that they can succeed in, in what they're trying to do. Just get the Russians out of their country. Yeah. Thanks. Yes, over here. You're absolutely correct, and no one knows that better than the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians, the, so I, I mentioned, I've been there a lot during this war, um, and I talked to a lot of people, in the government, out of the government, I talked to soldiers, I talked to civilians. Um, the first thing, when they know, many of them know me at this point, but the first thing when they're talking to any, any American, um, the first thing they'll say is, thank you. They say, thank you for what you're doing. And the second thing is, we, we need more. Um, and they know that for them to get more, or to even keep what's now coming, coming, they, they, they know that we have to trust them. They know that very, very well. They want to be, the Ukrainians want to be very sure that every bullet um, gets to the front line. They, the support for their troops, Ukrainian support for their troops is overwhelming um, and is, and is genuine um, and is heartfelt in every family. Um, so in every village, um, they are supporting their troops. And they don't want, and there have not been reports of diversion of arms, number one. Number two, um, the, another uh, the professor talked about uh, uh, this article in the, in the newspaper today, this one by, the, by a Russian. Um, there's, there's another op-ed piece that gets exactly to your question about where's this money going. Turns out, 
that this 5% of the defense budget that I mentioned, this $45 billion, um, is actually going to U.S. workers, going to U.S. factories. I don't know if you read this, but take a look. In the, it's in the Washington Post today. Uh, a man named Mark Thiessen, and he's done a lot of research um, on where the money goes, in particular this weapons money. And it turns out uh, that when we provide weapons, just as an example, if we provide ammunition um, for artillery, artillery uh, weapons um, in Ukraine, we take, them, we take these rounds out of stocks and we send them to Ukraine. And what, then what we need to do is buy more. And the people, the, the companies, the firms, the manufacturing companies that are making those rounds are Americans. And they're in Ohio, and he does these maps. There's great maps of uh, where all these factories are. Um, and he points out, he's a, he's a careful political observer, and he notices that of the small number of senators uh, who don't support uh, the sending weapons uh, to Ukraine, a couple of those small of that small number are from places where there are factories that are benefiting from the supplies going to Ukraine because they are replacing the. So there's there's no worry about corruption there, uh, and there there the, the cash that we provide goes to the World Bank. And the World Bank meters it, monitors it, accounts for it uh, through, the, through their mechanisms. And there have been no allegations that I've seen, I may not have read everyone, but I've read a lot, uh, there's been no allegations of any of the international assistance being, uh, going to corrupt places. What there have been is there have been arrests made of like the, the uh, Supreme, the, the uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court was arrested, caught red-handed, taking bribes from other Ukrainians for a, a favorable opinion coming out, and the, the, the system, the anti-corruption system that the Ukrainians have put in place in, to be sure that they maintain our trust, that system worked, and it caught this chief justice, there were a couple of deputy defense ministers who were also um, uh, accused of and will soon be tried for uh, corruption on buying eggs at elevated prices. And this uh, great reporter um, uh, in Ukraine went out to the market, figured out how much eggs were being sold for, looked at the, at the contracts that the, uh, that the Ukrainian government, Ministry of Defense, what they were paying, and they were paying a lot more, and somebody was making some money. There's no foreign assistance in that. That's, you know, that's corruption in, now, the other thing I, will, that I always point out when this issue of corruption comes up is all countries have this problem. There is a congressman today um, in Washington who's about to be kicked out of Congress for being so corrupt um, and using, you know what I'm talking about here, um, so corrupt uh, and using his, his constituents' monies for just amazing stuff. This is also the guy who said that he had Holocaust survivors in his, in his ancestry, it all lies. So, so we have this problem. We have a, we have a senator from New Jersey um, who is uh, accused of, yeah. 
corruption as well. All to say that this is a common problem and what you need to do is deal with it. And the Ukrainians know that. They've got systems in place now that are dealing with, with this problem. So lastly, on the, I'm glad you asked this question too because this gives me an opportunity to, to, to make this point because it comes up a lot. It comes up a lot. And we do need to trust them. We do need to have confidence that the money that we are putting in there, 5% of our defense budget, um, is, is not being ripped off. And we have that confidence. Um, Transparency International does a report every year. Uh, and it measures, for all the countries around the world, uh, perception of corruption. And you don't want to be at the bottom, you know? So they, they have like 200. Um, and you want to be at the top. You know, the least corrupt are at the top. We're not actually at the very top. Uh, there are some Scandinavian countries that are right up at the top. But we're down a little bit. But we're still towards the top. Ukraine, uh, in 2014, before the Russians invaded, was way down. It was down like 160 out of 200. Let's be clear. The Russians are always worse than Ukraine. <laughs> they are more, much more corrupt uh, than, than any other nation in, in Europe. But the Ukrainians were at the 160. Now, with this effort that I mentioned in putting in place these anti-corruption measures, um, they're up at 116. Still not great, but they've been improving a lot um, and, and doing it, and they're going in the right direction. So I am comfortable, and I'm gonna have this conversation with, uh, with your son and his, uh, on this whole thing of, of corruption. This is a very interesting question that you should, people should be asking this question. Yeah, sir, first of all, thank you for speaking tonight and thank you for your service. Uh, four years is remarkable. So, 2012, 2013, uh, President Obama famously declared a red line against uh, the Assad regime regarding the use of chemical weapons uh, when that red line was not uh, adhered to. Some of the narratives uh, claim that Putin uh, was actually emboldened by that and sent Russian troops and advisors uh, to the Assad regime. Now, of course, Assad in uh, Syria is not comparable to the But do you think, or is there an unspoken red line now in the Biden administration that would prevent or uh, a plan in place for further Rus Russian escalation and our response, say, if Kiev is surrounded, something like that? I mean, of course, it would be unspoken at this point. Um, but is there anything like that, or do you think there should be a red line? So I have resisted the notion of red lines, mainly on the Russian side for reasons that I talked about earlier. I mean, you know, we've gone up the ladder in terms of what kind of weapons we, and we were always worried about red lines. We're, you know, and it turns out there were no red lines. Uh, so, and, and you make the good point about the Obama administration in Syria and chemical weapons. Uh, you know, it's, you either have to, you know, abide by them um, or, or don't make the case. I mean, don't, don't make the promise that you'll, that you'll do something if you're not gonna do it. Um, but, but another concern, not, not a red line, but another indication that Putin um, took as an encouragement was our withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, so when we withdrew from Afghanistan, Putin looked at that, others too, um, and said, you know, the Americans, they must not have the stomach. They must not have the staying power. So I, Putin, I, I, can, I can take more risks. I can, do, I can be a little more aggressive. President Xi in China has probably noticed the same thing. Um, and, and, and he has said, they, the Chinese have said, you know, that the, 
that the, uh, the Americans' time has passed, that they're on the decline, we're on the rise. Um, and when they saw the, the Afghanistan pull out, um, they, see, uh, they said, and so they've noticed, both President Putin and President Xi, um, that without setting red lines, um, the Biden administration and the Americans, the US government, and the American people have said, we're standing with the Ukrainians. We're standing with the Ukrainians. Um, and Putin probably thought that was not gonna happen. She is watching very closely to see if we stick with the Ukrainians. If we don't, that'll reinforce his sense the Americans are on the climb. They don't, they don't, they say one thing and they, and they don't follow through. And he then be more likely to go into Taiwan. Um, so, so without going into the red line business, I think the demonstrated strength um, that the, the administration of the United States has presented to, in the first instance, strength against this, in support of Ukraine against the Russian invasion is a strong signal. Red line or not, I'm not sure about red lines. Um, um, but that, if we, if we drop the ball, if we get tired, if we, if we crack, if we, if we stop supporting, then we're running into the problem that you identified. Can I follow up Please. and just ask you whether you think that in the event that the Ukrainians broke through and were threatening essentially to win the war, yep. Putin might use nuclear weapons? So we have to be worried about that. Um, and um, deterrence, you know, the way we have deterred the use of nuclear weapons since 1945 has been to ensure that no one sees it as it makes, as making any sense. We've deterred anyone's use, anyone's use. They've deterred us, we've deterred them, that, that's been successful. That can still work, and indeed, um, in answer to this very question, um, the nat our national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, um, uh, made an, a public statement to the Russians and said, if you use tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine, you will face, and he used these words, catastrophic consequences in, in, in a very clear message to deter the use of nuclear weapons by the Russians in Ukraine. Now, he didn't say what those catastrophic consequences would be, and I, no one believes that it would be a nuclear response. Jake Sullivan, the US government is not threatening to use nuclear weapons. What we're threatening to do is, this maybe get to your question about what we would do in certain circumstances, um, is if they were to use nuclear weapons, they would have, there would have to be a response. There would have to be a response, and that response would be, in the first instance, conventional, that is not nuclear, and it would be aimed at the military capability that used those weapons. Um, and you know, the United States government at the top level, the National Security Advisor to the President has said there will be catastrophic consequences. And the Chinese have said to Putin, shut up. Putin has been making this you know, bluff, the saber rally, you know, I've got, don't forget, I've got nuclear weapons, he said a couple of times. And his people say it as well. Uh, don't forget, you know, we, we, I'm gonna move him around, he says, just to remind us that he's good. And the Chinese have said, shut up, and, and he has. He has calmed that down. We haven't heard that kind of talk 
um, in months. And I, you know, maybe it's due to Jake Sullivan saying, or maybe it's due to President Xi saying, shut up. Um, we have time for one more question. And I've got time afterwards. If anybody wants to stick around, I'm happy to uh, continue. Yes, ma'am. So that's a great question. It's a great question. Um, and, and it is true uh, that the Russians now need the Chinese. Um, so it used to be, you know, when we were growing up, you know, in the Cold War, you know, it was the Russia, it was the Soviet Union, um, and then the Chinese. Uh, <clears throat> kind of very big brother and very little brother. And the Communist Party here looked at the Communist Party, it's flipped. The Chinese are clearly the dominant power in that pair, number one. And the Russians are uncomfortable with that. The Chinese are actually pretty comfortable with that. <laughs> uh, the Russians are not. Um, so it's not, it's not clear how stable that is going to be. But number two, the Russians have gone to the Chinese and asked for weapons and asked for help getting around specific sanctions that we put on, like microchips. And, and the Chinese have said no. They said, we're not going to violate the sanctions to help you out, and we're not going to provide you with weapons. Um, the, as I said, the, the Russians can buy weapons from two places, Iran and North Korea. That's it. Um, no one else is, is at least that we can tell, um, is selling weapons to them. So, and, and, then, and then the last question is, the relationship between the United States and China and the relationship between the United States and Russia is very interesting. So I come from, I, I live in Washington. I work in Washington right now. And I will tell you, there are two views about China in, in that city. And, and, and the Biden administration has one view that says, you know, we're going to have to talk to these folks. And we saw President Xi and President Biden in San Francisco. They had this meeting. And we've seen other cabinet ministers go back and forth and have these conversations. So the Biden administration's view is that you know they are a challenge. Um, it doesn't have to be a war. We should be prepared, and we should support Taiwan, uh, but it doesn't have to be a war. That's one view. The other view, which I will tell you, uh, is more broadly held, more widely held, and it's Republicans and Democrats in Congress who are so anti-China um, that they believe that the Chinese are preparing to attack um, and that we, this is the extreme view, some people talk both, that we should go first, that we should preempt so that they don't attack. You know, again, that's the extreme view. Not many people, but there, but there are strong views about how, how hostile we should be, supporting hostility toward the Chinese. The, the, the administration, the Biden administration is not there. So then the question gets back to your question about the Chinese-Russian relations. And if we, if the United States, can have some kind of a relationship, be able to talk to the Chinese, we're not talking to the Russians. The Russians have demonstrated it's not worth talking to them. They told us, they told the world, um, uh, in January of 2022, 
there's no chance that we're going to invade Ukraine. They said this. They said, the Westerners are hysterical. They think we're going to invade, we're not gonna invade Ukraine. February they invaded Ukraine. So there's no sense, in, it makes little to no sense to be talking to them about almost anything. And, and we're not, we're talking to the Chinese. Um, and if we can have that, we can develop that relationship, I think that will enable uh, us to contain the Russians over time. Well, I, we're, we're at this point, but the ambassador is gonna be here for a little bit longer and be more than happy to take more questions. Let me just thank you very much for giving us this opportunity to talk.